All righty, let's go ahead. I was not nervous last night. Jane Scanlon sitting right here, and she was there last night, and I was not nervous last night. Um, I don't generally get very nervous talking in front of people, but when they started me doing life together, it made a difference when I suddenly had to talk to my elders and my bosses and everybody in the church. That makes me, that gives me anxiety, and I don't say that ever, not ever. Um, But this, now I'm sitting in front of all of my leaders that normally tell me all the answers, and that makes me a little nervous. (laughs) All right, so Leviticus. I have already told you that getting to this point was a bit of a dance. We began this trek through the Bible several years ago in Genesis. We marched on to Exodus, took a big jump over to John, nodded back to the Sermon on the Mount, and followed the disciples through Acts. At that point, it seemed to me like it was time to get back to the Israelites in the wilderness. We had kind of left them wandering around in circles. But as the subject came up, um, we spent a lot of time talking about whether we come back to Leviticus, and we did hit a bit of a wall. Together, the leaders and I realized we weren't quite ready for it, so we circled around Corinth last year, buying us a bit more time. I feel strongly that the Lord has been leading this dance. We are in Leviticus because of his lead. But I confess to you that I still carry nervousness that this will be the year that Bible study at Grace of Van dies. As the leader, my job is somewhat dependent upon the success of the programs and events that we have. If I am completely out of touch with the women and with the world today, I should probably look for another job. Uh, And there have been moments when I feared that this study would be the end of this career for me. Several times in my life now, not nearly as often as I would like to say, my eyes have run over each word of this book of Leviticus. They have sensed the letters of the words that form sentences and paragraphs, but honestly, very little has sunk into understanding. You may know it's fairly common knowledge that I have a little texting group of women who read through the Bible together. We began this several years ago in an effort to help one of our friends who was uh, entering a very difficult stage of her marriage in her early faith years, and we just stuck with it. The first time we began reading straight through the Bible, another friend in the group rebelled against reading Leviticus. I will not name any names, but she knows who she is. She's a very accomplished person, driven and successful. And when she told me that she was not reading this book with us, I just dared her to do it. I told her that when we were done with reading the Bible, all of us would be able to say, yeah, and pump our fists in the air, so excited that we had read every single word of word of God's word, and she would not be able to do that with us. She would have failed. I'm a real bully. (laughs) To my knowledge, that was enough to motivate her to at least listen to Leviticus on audio at work, and I think she eventually made it through. It's funny, though, dare is a word that seems to come up fairly regularly in conjunction with Leviticus. This summer, we used the phrase dare to delight, and Carol and Edie at least played around with the idea during the promotional video. As I listened to Les Newsom's sermons on Leviticus, he dared his college students to hang in there as he began to teach through this book. It's just hard, isn't it? But man, it's good. I cannot believe it, but Leviticus is causing me to fall in love with the gospel afresh. 
I love the idea of wonder and awe. I long to be amazed by the richness of God and his great work of redeeming his wicked people. But awe is hard to hold on to. It's hard to sustain. How in the world could this be accomplished through studying Leviticus? I had to camp here. I had to be made to stop and listen to mark in color the details of this rule book, this book of the law. It is the actual study of it that is so rich for me. Once I get the markers or the colored pencils going, I begin to finally see the patterns. The words have meaning. Not unlike the Israelites, I had to be still. I had to wander around in it before it came to life. I may have been the director of women's ministry at Grace for six years now, but this is my first time to teach Bible study large group. This, this could be the end of the career. <laughs> We have a lot of talented teachers, and there was no need for me in the past, but for some reason, we were a little short-staffed on volunteers this time. Shocking. It still does not seem like the best time to learn to teach Bible study. It probably could have been easier in Psalms or something like that. I confess, I'm not very far ahead of you in this study, maybe a minute, but I know some of you out there, and I'm not ahead of you. I was doing my own homework for the first lesson, and I was like, man, these questions are good. They actually work. I did, not, I did actually type the questions, but it was not my brain that formulated them, and I was just as surprised as anyone that we could make some sense here. Les Newsom says that the beauty of Leviticus is in the details, and I'm beginning to see that is true. If I were to grow complacent again tomorrow, which is very possible... I am so thankful that I've had the opportunity to fall in love with Jesus again through these first few chapters of the book. Edie started us off very beautifully in the offerings last week. She used a clever picture of a roller coaster to set us up with an understanding of the first three offerings, the burnt, the grain, and the fellowship. Today, we got to talk about the last two, sin or purification and the guilt or reparation offerings. I am not a Bible scholar, I will not propose to teach you all the nuances of these chapters. There's not nearly enough time. And honestly, there are many resources out there that will do a much better job. In fact, I listened to several lessons on audio given by Les Newsom while at Ole Miss RUF, and I was tempted to just get up here and push play. I won't do that, but I do suggest finding them on iTunes and listening to them. Today, all I want to do is impress upon you some of the details that meant so much to me in these chapters. With the sin offering, God makes provision for sinning unintentionally. Our natures are so broken by the fall that we sin all the time when we don't even realize it. Andrew Bonner calls this sin through ignorance. He says, how saddening to find that we grieve the Lord in so many hidden ways. We have a heart as prone to sin as the body is to weariness. David writes in Psalm 19:12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. How many times have you found this to be true in your life? We struggled last week in leaders' meeting, wondering how often you had to make a sacrifice for your sin. If we truly understand our sinful natures, would it ever end? 
Some days it seems that it would take in all of the sins, all of the animals of the world just to cover my sin. How much more for a nation of a million people? We have a funny little tradition at our house. When someone does something that we, the parents, do not like that hasn't been addressed before, my husband stops everyone and says, new rule, and I usually say under my breath, number 742, because there is no possible way that we could keep up with all of the new rules that we declare at our house. I'll give you an example. We have a plastic pitcher that we keep filled with tea in the refrigerator. It makes two quarts, and it seems like that should last us for a while, but it goes rather quickly. My husband seems to think he is the only one that is always filling his glass when it gets to the end and that he is cursed with having to make the tea all the time. It's actually not true. I make it a lot. But one day he declared, new rule, whoever drinks the last of the tea has to refill the pitcher. Most of my kids just stop drinking the tea. But that is a rule that we use at our house, and it is a graciousness that we let everyone know this new rule if they want to remain in good standing there. (laughs) Leviticus 4 begins like Leviticus 1 with God saying to Moses, speak to the people. It is like God is declaring new rule. He is saying to Moses, go get everyone. Tell them what I'm about to tell you. God in his graciousness is communicating his laws to his people. His desire for intimacy with them is so great that he wants them to know exactly what has to be done in order to dwell with them, near them, and to preserve their life. He uses words that the Israelites understood, that we understand today, words that are clear communication. My husband declares new rule so that we can dwell better together in our home. On Saturday, as I was at my son's football game, another family was there and they were planning to hurry to the Memphis game right after. They had driven separately and she was going to take her car home and wait for him to come pick her up. We're all laughing as he is like, I want you to be in the driveway. We were teasing him by saying all kinds of things like, by the mailbox, in the street, running as I slow down. But of course, it reminded me of this study. Clear communication is good and gracious. And Leviticus is just popping up everywhere. Leviticus 4 also starts out addressing the high priest's unintentional sin. Let's suggest repentance makes all sin unintentional. And I'm just going to let that sink in for just a minute. That's interesting, right? But when the high priest realizes his guilt of this unintentional sin, he must sacrifice a bull. This is the costliest of the sacrifices. God holds the high priest to such a high standard because the people are watching When the high priest sins, his leadership position, his office is leading others to sin. He is the standard of morality, righteousness, who will mediate on their behalf to God. So nothing less than a bull is acceptable to atone for his sin. The same is true when the whole congregation has sinned collectively, like building the golden calf. The costliest, most valuable animal, the bull, had to die to cover the sin of the people. How can you not see Jesus there? The costliest, 
most valuable had to die to cover the sin of the people. I want you to look at Leviticus 4, 11, and 12. If you have it there, just turn to it real quick. These verses say, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, its dung, all of the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burned up. In the verses before these, we learn that the fat kidneys and the long lobe of the liver were offered on the altar and burned up for the Lord. In that culture, those were considered the best parts, the delicacies of the culture. Those were reserved for God alone. However, the rest of the bull was to be carried to the ash heap and completely burned. The ash heap is believed to have been four miles from the holy place. Four miles. This was not just a little fire pit right outside the wall of the tabernacle. It would have taken a priest over an hour to just get to the ash heap. But if he is carrying a bull carcass, I'm guessing it would take a little little longer. And a bull is big. You would need multiple people, maybe animals, and a cart to help you get the bull carcass to the ash heap. It's an ordeal. But why was it outside the camp? This is the first time the ash heap is mentioned in Leviticus. So when the high priest sins or when the congregation sins collectively, they must offer the best parts to God, then remove the rest, every bit of it, to the ash heap. As a side note, there is no benefit of this animal sacrifice for any of the people, not the priest or the offerer. We cannot benefit from our own sin. God can use it, but we cannot benefit from it. Andrew Bonner says, it's as if the altar were too near God's presence to express fully that part of the sinner's desert, which consists in suffering torment far off from God. Imagine, if you will, that the people have been found guilty of a collective sin. Moses has just returned from the mountain with words from God, words of rebuke. They are in trouble. They have been called out and there is no denying their guilt. The high priest chooses the best of the prize bulls, a male without blemish. The entire camp is enraptured by this act. The gate is crowded with those who have come to watch the act of atonement, which will cover everyone. Many, many more watch from their tent, glimpsing all that they can. The bull cries out when its veins are severed. The bulk of the animal is managed with difficulty while he is carefully dissected by the skilled priests. The best parts are laid on the altar and each instruction is carried out. Then the priests heft the animal into a transportation of some sort and begin the trek to the ash heap, the trek to outside the camp. Imagine the quiet that grips the people. A million people have been found guilty, and now the sacrifice, what's left of the prized bull, begins the journey to hell. Isn't that what the ash heap would have represented to them? How many people would have followed? Maybe the elderly or maybe those heaviest with guilt stayed behind, but my guess is that many followed to see the completion of this sacrificial act that would take place beyond the borders of safety and comfort 
far from the presence of God, outside the camp. That's what they deserved, just like us in their sin, to be removed far from God. But look again at verse 12, if you have it still there, of chapter four. It says, and it's a little bit remarkable how God describes this ash heap. All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't think of an ash heap as a clean place. Andrew Bonner suggests that while this place represents hell to the people, it is the complete consumption of this perfect animal that makes it clean. Once the sacrifice is reduced to ashes, even the place is made clean. All guilt is washed away. But there's even more. Look at what comes next. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Natalie Vaughn was impressed by the repetition of the word shall last week. Do you know what that word means? A quick Google search defines that word with the phrase will have to or must. This is far from an insignificant repetition of words. Here we have a promise that follows an action. If the sacrifice is made, just as God has explained, atonement will be made and sin will be forgiven. That's it. There are no limitations here given by the lawgiver. No three strikes and you're out. No 70 times seven even. If you were to lie to your friend one million times, if the sacrifice were offered, the sin would be atoned for and you would be forgiven. Okay, it's too obvious. Jesus is right there. My eyes are often too swift and my head is too dumb to catch it unless I am made to stop and read and mark and study. We humans, all of us, have been found collectively guilty. We are sinners. There is no escaping that. Our natural selves are prone to wander, bent toward a fence in love with sin. We cannot escape the guilt and yet... God has gathered us all together and told us the new rules. A sacrifice must be made. The best of the best must be killed in exchange for our lives. Les says that life must be paid for in its own currency. And so Jesus exchanged his life for ours. I'm sure I've heard it before, but it doesn't feel like it until today. I've always thought that the Israelites' wandering was just a punishment, like 40 years of being grounded. They were stupid, just like I am, and they couldn't get it, so they had to be punished until everyone died. But today, I see the grace. God's action always has purpose. The beauty is in the details, and you have to be still to see them. What if you and all your people had been in slavery for 400 years? How long would it take to correct the ways of thinking like a slave? How would you impress upon them the guilt of their own sin and their need for a holy God? How long would it take? 40 years of practicing was only a start, but it was a gracious act of patience to prepare them to be a kingdom of priests. I imagine myself a young Israelite girl living in this band of gypsies. I see my tent that houses my family, maybe multiple generations. 
We are not wealthy, but everyone around us is in a similar situation. Our extended relatives camp near one another, and our close proximity means that we know one another well. I think about the picture that is impressed on my mind and heart as I look toward the tabernacle. As the verses say in chapter six, the fire on the altar of burnt offerings shall be kept burning morning and night. What a drumbeat that must have been throughout the camp. I imagine the constant sight of smoke, the smell of burning animal flesh and frankincense. My daily tasks may distract me from the sight for a time, but my senses would call me back to the pall of perpetual death. I wonder how it would have pressed on my heart the need for atonement. I wonder how knowledge of sin would niggle at my heart until it was time to confess and make the sacrifice for my own sin. And here's the thing. Being a woman in that culture, I couldn't have made the sacrifice for my own sin. As a girl, I would have had to rely on my father or brother or husband to go to the tabernacle in my place. I would have had to tell my protector and he would have had to do it for me. I can imagine how costly and how humiliating that must have felt. And yet I think of the grace to have so many mediators on my behalf, a father who obediently and tenderly pays for the lamb or chooses one from the pen that is attached to my very home and walks openly amongst my friends and family to the tabernacle on my behalf. Even if I accompany him, he is likely the one who will kill the animal for me. And then the priest will complete the sacrificial ritual on my behalf. And of course, God himself will accept the offering, declare my sin atoned, and me forgiven. I can see it in my mind, and I can nearly smell it. But all of these pictures point to one thing, my need The offerings were only necessary because of the need. Today, we live in more permanent residences. We do not see or smell the evidence of an animal holocaust. Today, in this post-Calvary world, as a believer and acceptor of the ultimate sacrifice, the smoke has been replaced by the Holy Spirit. I don't see it or smell it, but it is the very Spirit of God that lives inside of me. My husband, Ken, and I have been married for 20 years now. We are going through re-engage, like probably a lot of you, this semester. The little workbook has brought up some interesting conversations. And as one of my friend's husband likes to say, I don't want to go looking for trouble. (laughs) We have found some. (laughs) And isn't that just the truth of marriage in any relationship? And here is my problem with my marriage. Are you ready? I'm going to tell you. It has to do with how I would fill in the blank of this sentence. I deserve blank. How can I, who knows my needs so fundamentally, still feel in the core of my being that I deserve to be treated perfectly? How is it that I, having some knowledge of the depth of my sin and the failures to live up to the standard of righteousness that Christ has laid before me, How can I still finish any sentence, even in my head, that sounds like, I deserve better? The perpetual burnt offering reminds us that we deserve at any time of any day to have God judge us for our offense. What I really deserve is the fate of the bull. 
every bit of me burned to ashes. And yet, there is no longer a perpetual smoking altar in my neighborhood reminding me of the sin that leads to death. I have a much greater gift residing in me that gently reminds me of the final sacrifice and turns my eyes out to the ash heap where all of my guilt is washed away. Let's pray. Dearest Father, I thank you that all guilt is washed away in your son, Jesus. It is amazing. It doesn't make sense to us. Why in the world would you sacrifice the costliest and most beautiful for us? Lord, I pray that we will be reminded of your great work that you have done for us. Help us, Lord, to honor you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray.